In heaven, we won't need to ask for daily food because there'll be no hunger. In heaven, we won't need to ask for forgiveness. There'll be no more sin. We won't need to ask for protection from evil because the evil one will be forever bound. But we will continue to hallow God's name forever. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. What does the word hallowed mean? When you utter the words, hallowed be your name, in the Lord's Prayer, why is it placed at the very beginning? Does it take on importance and precedence? And if so, why? Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom has part two of his current series, Lord Teach Us to Pray. As Tom will cover in the lesson today, Christ Jesus instructs his disciples to begin their prayers by first and foremost acknowledging the glory of God. His name is holy, hallowed if you will. His glory is more important than anything else. It's more important than the needs of this life. It's more important than having your spiritual needs met. It's more important than life itself, God being treated as the most important thing. Is that how you approach Him in prayer, friend? Does recognizing God and His glory take first place in your life today? Consider those questions as we join our teacher now on The Word Unleashed. Acts chapter 12, we meet Herod Agrippa I, one of the men who received the kingdom after Herod the Great's death. Acts chapter 12, verse 21. On an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to the people. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. Now, there are probably a couple of things going on here. No doubt he was something to behold in the, in the kingly robes and garments, sparkling in the sunlight with the jewels on them and everything else. And he probably was a brilliant man in terms of his ability to speak. There was probably also a little brown nosing going on here as well. But the problem was Herod began to read his own press. He began to believe his own press releases. And notice what happens in verse 23. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. Now this is a pagan. But when he didn't give God glory, God interacted to take his life. Same thing happens to all mankind. In Romans chapter 1, Paul passes this indictment on all humanity. He says in verse 21, even though they knew God, that is from creation, they knew that there was a God and that he was great and he had divine power and he was eternal in his being. You can see that from the creation. We saw just a glimpse of God's power last night as that thunderstorm rolled through our area. Job calls thunderstorms the fringes of his power. You can see about God in creation. But what does verse 21 of Romans 1 say? Even though they understood this, they did not honor him. The word honor is the Greek word glorify. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks. And how did God respond to mankind's refusal to see him and to glorify him and to give him thanks for all that he's done? Verse 24, 
God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions, to homosexuality. And verse 28, He gave them over to a depraved mind. God interacts in His judgment, not of overt judgment, but of pulling back His influences so that man runs his sin out to the maximum. We see this on the front page of our newspaper every day. This is how God responds when He's not glorified. You can look into the future and see the same thing. In the book of Revelation, Revelation 16, as God unleashes His judgment on this planet through a series of cataclysmic judgments, Revelation 16, 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun. This is in the future now. And it was given to it to scorch men with fire. Somehow, God changes the normal function of the sun either in, in weakening our own atmosphere or in somehow moving them slightly closer or miraculously doing something else, so that now men, verse 9, are scorched with fierce heat. And how do they respond? They blaspheme the name of God who has the power over these plagues, and they did not repent so as to give Him glory. And what does God do in response? He continues to unleash the fullness of His wrath. Now, Most of those are unbelievers. But what about for us who are in Christ? Does God still take our failure to treat Him as holy seriously? You know, the the one example that just screams at me from the Scripture is the example of Moses. Because Moses was unique. God Himself says in Numbers that Moses was special. He talked to Moses face to face as we talk to our friends. Someday we'll enjoy that, but not now. Moses was unique. And yet in spite of that, listen to what the Lord said to Moses as a result of the incident at Meribah. You remember when Moses struck the rock? Numbers 20, verse 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, "...because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them." You're not going into into Canaan. You're not going into the promised land because Moses and Aaron, you failed to treat me as holy. By the way, for those of you who are in the later years of your life, there's a warning here in the life of Moses. You know when this failure came? It came in year 119, one year before they were to enter the promised land. You need to pray as I do, God help me to finish well. In Deuteronomy 32, Verse 50, God says to Moses, You will die on the mountain where you ascend and be gathered to your people as Aaron your brother died on Mount Hor, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel at the waters of Meribah, because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the sons of Israel. Even someone who had a unique relationship with God, when he failed to treat God as holy, it was a very serious matter. When you look at the consequences of not treating God as holy or glorifying Him, you can see how crucial this is to God. But we also know how important it is because Scripture teaches us that the glory of God is God's own chief end. Now, I know this doesn't fly well in a man-centered Christian culture in which we live, but this is what the Scriptures teach. God does everything for His own glory. What are the two greatest acts of God. Creation and redemption. Creation and redemption. Both of those were for God's own glory. 
creation. You know the passage in, in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens and the expanse of the heavens are to tell us what? The glory of God. As I lay on my bed last night, awake like you were, as that storm system rolled through the Metroplex, my mind was drawn to the reality that we are in one tiny little spot on a pale blue dot flying on the outer rim of one of the smallest galaxies in the universe called the Milky Way galaxy among an ocean of other galaxies. And all of that is not to teach us how small we are. It does that. But all of that is to teach us about the greatness of God. It's His glory, the expanse showing the glory of God. And He created for that reason. The reason all that stuff's out there, the reason the stuff you saw on the way to church this morning is there, is to display God's glory. That's why He made you. It's also the reason God acted in redemption. If you were to look at Ephesians chapter 1, three times in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says in reference to the Father, in reference to the Son, and in reference to the Spirit, God brought salvation to the praise of His glory. The only reason you are a Christian today is because God was getting glory to Himself. Yes, He loves you individually and personally. Yes, you are a love gift to His Son. But the ultimate reason behind it all is to put His glory on display. When we pray, hallowed be your name, we are saying, God, sanctify or set apart or glorify your person and everything which is associated with you. Jesus tells us to begin our prayers here to show us that the glory of God is more important than anything else. It's more important than you're getting the needs of this life. It's more important than you're getting your spiritual needs met. It's more important than life itself. Think about this for a moment. In heaven, we won't need to ask for daily food because there'll be no hunger. In heaven, we won't need to ask for forgiveness. There'll be no more sin. We won't need to ask for protection from evil because the evil one will be forever bound. But we will continue to hallow God's name forever. Turn back to Revelation. Let's start in chapter 4. Revelation 4, verse 9. And when the living creatures, these are the cherubim, those creatures who continually celebrate the holiness of God, They give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, to Him who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders, that's representative of the saints, will fall down before Him who sits on the throne and will worship Him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne. That is our acknowledgement that any rewards we get are all grace. And we will say, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. There we celebrate God's glory in creation. Go over to the next chapter, chapter 5. Here we celebrate God's glory in redemption. Verse 12, that huge crowd made up of angels and the redeemed around the throne will say, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And every created thing in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne, the Father, and to the Lamb, the Son, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. That will be the song we will sing forever. It never stops. Our prayers should begin with God's glory because there is nothing in time or in eternity that is more important to God. So we've asked and answered the question, what does it mean to hallow God's name? And why does it matter? But there's a third crucial question, and that question is, how does it happen? How does it happen? The ultimate answer is that it is an act of God. God causes His name to be hallowed or treated as holy. Remember, hallowed be your name is what? A prayer. That's our recognition that we don't have it in our power to do this. Only God can cause His name to be truly glorified. But in this area, as in every other area, the same God who decreed the ends, in this case, that He would be glorified, also decreed the means to that end. So how exactly does God cause His name to be hallowed? What means does God use to accomplish this? Now, this is crucial for our study of the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, because when you and I ask God to glorify His name or to set it apart, we are in reality asking God to do these things. Because Scripture tells us that there are specific ways God gets glory to Himself. Now, I surveyed all of the Scripture, and I came up with several pages of references on this theme. And then I condensed them the vast majority of those references, to several major categories. Let me give you several specific ways that God is glorified in the world. I'm going to give you the phrase. I would encourage you to jot down the references, and then you can look them up and make sure I'm telling you the truth later, okay? Number one, this is the most obvious way. God's name is treated as holy or sanctified when we speak about God and His holy things with reverence. Exodus 20, verse 7, the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. The first and most obvious way to treat God as holy is how you use his name. Do you use God's name or his son's name lightly, frivolously, or God forbid, as an expletive? Listen. God doesn't take it lightly when you treat his name in such a disrespectful way. He will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. We treat God as holy when we talk about him and his holy things with reverence. How do you talk about the scripture? How do you talk about the church? How do you talk about God himself? Use phrases like the man upstairs or some modern equivalent. You better treat God seriously. He will be treated as holy. Secondly, we treat Him as holy by praising, adoring, and thanking Him. Second Chronicles 5.13 says that when the trumpeters and the singers were, were to make themselves heard with one voice, this is in the corporate worship of God's Old Testament people, listen to this, to praise and to glorify the Lord. You see how those phrases are used? By singing their praises to God, they were doing what? Glorifying God. 
It says, they lifted up their voice accompanied by trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music. And when they praised the Lord saying, he, is, he indeed is good for his steadfast love is everlasting, then the house of the Lord was filled with the glory cloud. We glorify God by praising, adoring, and thanking him. This, by the way, is a huge category in the Psalms. Let me just give you one example of hundreds I could give you. Psalm 22, verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. You see again how it's used synonymously. To praise God is to glorify God. 2 Corinthians 4.15, May the grace which is spreading to more and more people cause the giving of thanks to abound, which will lead to the glory of God. When people give thanks to God, it brings glory to God. Every time you and I lift our hearts or our voices in praise and adoration and thanksgiving, we are glorifying God. We are setting Him apart and treating Him as holy. Thirdly, by thinking rightly about Him. Isaiah 8 13, it is Yahweh of hosts whom you should regard as holy. This has to do with what goes on in your mind. You should regard him as holy in how you think about him. And he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. You have a serious sense of the greatness and majesty of God. When you think about him like that, it glorifies him. It treats him as holy. 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify, there's our word, set apart Christ as Lord in your hearts. This has to do with how you think about Jesus Christ. Do you think about him, set him apart as your Lord, your master? Number four, by responding in faith to Jesus Christ and the gospel. This, by the way, is where glorifying God begins Jesus in John 5, 23 says, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Listen, you can't glorify God if you don't believe in His Son and the good news He brought. Until you're willing to acknowledge your own sinfulness and that you deserve God's eternal wrath, and you're willing to turn from that sin and put your confidence in Jesus' perfect life and in His substitutionary death and in His resurrection, you cannot glorify God. In fact, exactly the opposite is true. When you refuse to believe God's Son, when you refuse to embrace His gospel, you are demeaning the glory of God. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. 1 Peter 1.7, the proof of your faith is going to be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you live through the trials of this life and your faith stays genuine and true, ultimately that faith in Christ and His gospel will bring praise and honor to God. Number five, You treat God as holy when you live a life of righteousness and faithful service. In his catechism, Martin Luther asked, how is God's name hallowed among us? How does this happen? Here was Luther's answer. When our life and doctrine are truly Christian, when what you believe and how you live match, and they both are characterized by righteousness. We saw in Matthew 5, 16, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. John 15, 8, Jesus says, My Father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit. 
Philippians 1.11, we are filled with the fruit of righteousness, which results in the glory and praise of God. Number six, we glorify God, we treat Him as holy by loving other Christians and ministering to them. Romans 15.5 and 6, now may God grant you to be of the same mind with one another, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we dwell together in unity as Christians, when we love each other, when we care for each other, it brings glory to God. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11, you have a gift you've been given, Christian. When you use that serving gift or that speaking gift for the good of the church, Peter says it results in God being glorified. Number seven, by trusting God even in our trials and persecution. You bring glory to God. 1 Peter 4.16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. Don't be ashamed, but instead, go through it and bring glory to God. John 21.19, he talked about Peter and how he was going to die, and he said he was signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God, even if they take our lives If we trust God through it, we bring Him glory, as the martyrs of the past have done. And finally, number eight, by committing to live to His glory. You have to make a decision that you're going to do what you do for the glory of God. In 1 Corinthians 10.31, that very familiar verse, it's in a section on, on Christian liberty. And Paul says, even in how you exercise your Christian liberty, determine this, whether then you eat or whether you drink, Or whatever you do, decide that you're going to do it all to the glory of God. David did this, 1 Samuel 17. Read his famous speech, 1 Samuel 17, verses 46 and 47. He says, here's why. In order that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's. David lived for the glory of God. That's what made him a man after God's own heart, by the way, is he lived for the glory of God. And when we pray, hallowed be your name, we are praying that all of those things I've just recounted will become a reality in our own hearts, in our own lives, in the lives over which we have influence and across this planet. I hope this challenges us all to begin most of our prayers by asking that God's name would be hallowed. What does it look like in real life, though? Let me give you an example. Here's what it looks like. It means saying, Lord, may your name be glorified even in the prayer I'm about to offer you. In my heart as I go through this day, in what I think when I'm able to think my own thoughts and not driven by work or some other responsibility, by what I do in my words, how how I speak, may you be glorified in my actions. May your name be set apart and treated as holy in my marriage, how I treat my spouse, how I teach and, and set an example for my children in my neighborhood, in how I do my work. May you be treated as holy in my church, in this city in which we live, in this nation, and in the world as a whole. If we start here, the rest of our requests fall into line because we won't come to God demanding our way. We won't come to God saying, God, you've got to heal me. You've got to give me that job. You've got to save my spouse. You've got to save my child. 
Nothing wrong with asking any of those things, but we won't come demanding. Instead, we'll come saying something like this, Lord, here's my desire. Here's my heart. This is what I want you to do. But more than I want you to answer this request, more than I want anything else, I want your great name to be hallowed and set apart in my life. So whatever you have to bring, whatever you have to do, however you have to answer this request for that to happen, let it be so. Jesus has taught us to pray. And he says, here's where true prayer really begins. Father, hallowed be your name. Let's pray together. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that was part two of Lord Teach Us to Pray. Tom will have part three for you next time, and we do hope you'll join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.